Welcome back to the peripheral. Today's episode is going to be a little different. I interview Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from the LA Not So Confidential podcast. I highly recommend you go check out their podcast, but it's not their podcast that we talk about. They both are forensic psychologists with focuses on sex offenders. And I promise we don't go into any graphic detail about the offenders. This is more about their journey, how they ended up there, their perceptions on true crime, law enforcement, and how they do self-care. We spoke at length about a lot of different subjects, so I'm just going to get to the podcast. You two need to introduce yourselves and your backgrounds, because I find it fascinating myself. You want to start, Dr. Shiloh? Sure. I guess I call myself a forensic psychologist as the bigger umbrella, but I specialize as a law enforcement or police psychologist now. Prior to all of that, I was really interested in law enforcement. I was born into a law enforcement family, must have hit the lottery or something. <laughs> you know, it, it was interesting to me. I think criminal justice was always something that was obviously present, but also I found pretty fascinating. So I, I ended up in undergrad majoring in criminal justice and psychology and really wanted to go to what's called the California Department of Justice. So most states have their version of it. It's it's like the FBI, if you will, of that state. And I knew I didn't want to be a cop and I just wanted to go into investigations. All you needed was a bachelor's degree to apply and be a special agent. And when I graduated, they were on this major, major hiring freeze in the entire state of California. So I really had to regroup and figure out something else because the months were ticking by. And here I was working part-time at Starbucks. And um, I also had a part-time job at my local police department as a police cadet. I was in charge of the property and the evidence area. And it was just a little behind the scenes way to get my foot in the door. And I realized, well, I should probably set my sights on something other than the state. And so I really thought, okay, then I'll, I'll go to federal law enforcement. And the problem there was that I needed actual experience in something, either as an attorney, a linguist, an accountant, or law enforcement. So, so law enforcement it was. And my department was very kind to say that they would hire me as a police officer. So I applied. I passed, I got hired as a police officer and, um, you know, I was just planning on staying four years so I could apply for the FBI, but then I got this crazy idea to go to graduate school about probably like a year and a half on the job. So my whole idea was not that I wanted to be a psychologist, but I just wanted to make myself a very desirable candidate when I finally did apply to the FBI. And I thought, if I have this doctorate in forensic psychology, there's no way they can turn me down. Mm -hmm. Here I was never wanting to be a cop and ended up being a cop, never wanted to be a psychologist and ended up getting into a forensic psychology program that I did simultaneously while working as a police officer. So I worked patrol the entire seven years I was with the department because I could work weekend nights, three 12 hour days, and then I would go to school during the week. So um, somehow I mustered the energy to do all that. And then I started doing my internships working primarily with sex offenders. So it was sex offender, 
treatment, both group and individual, and then psychological assessments when they would come in and risk assessments to see what kind of risk they were to the community, both in violence and then in sexual recidivism. And my very final, final internship before I graduated was at such a location doing that type of work. And that's where Dr. Scott and I met on day one of new internships and our our desks were back to back and we became besties right off the bat and continue to do that for over a decade, um, working in sex offender treatment and assessment and management. And about six years ago, I transitioned pretty fully, like my regular day job and ended up taking a position as a police psychologist, working with really large law enforcement agency here in Southern California and kept doing sex offender work on the side in a private practice and actually just wrapped that up a year ago this month. Um, I closed my private practice and just do sort of consultative and training work in that realm to keep up my expertise. But yeah, I'm sure we'll get into the the nitty gritty later, but that's kind of uh, my origin story. Yeah. That's a rough job. So <laughs> all of it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then you you met Dr. Scott. And what were you doing, Dr. Scott? So it's interesting. Uh psychology tends to be tends to be something that the majority of people come to at sort of a transitional point in their life, which is a good thing. Um, although I've met really fantastic clinicians who knew from the beginning that they really, that's what they wanted to do. So they go right from their BA to their master's to their doctorate. But there are a lot of people that are, have a good like decade, decade and a half or more in between that with a lot of life experience from other areas. And, and that was me. I, I came to, to LA back in 1987. I had been in Chicago for a few years. I grew up in Alabama um, and I was a professional dancer. I was a professional dancer in Chicago then out here in LA and once I kind of aged out of the profession of performing, I was like, ah, I got to figure something out. And <laughs> I got to figure this whole career thing out. And uh, a buddy of mine, my gym buddy, who was a huge agent at William Morris at the time said, you should come work at William Morris. And I'm like, uh, I, don't, I don't think I want to be an agent. And he goes, no, look, it's going to be a springboard for you. You know, it's an, it's a way to get your foot in the door and explore other areas because I think you'd be a really good producer you know, really creative, blah, blah, blah. So I go and I do that for six months and it was really challenging and it really was not for me. Um, it was very, very corporate and very sort of divorced from what I felt like was anything creative. And, and I could be wrong, but that was just my perception. And I was talking about it with one of the agents and you know, his name is David Yoakum. I think he's still around. He's a really great guy. And David goes, you know, you already have a reputation because you've been here seven months and you already have a reputation as being uh, the one that the casting directors want to talk to because you communicate well, you don't give them any bullshit. You're not terrified of your boss the way a lot of people are. Um, would you ever be interested in casting? I think I, I, I said, I think I would. So he put the word out and within like within 20 minutes, I had people calling me asking for interviews. And I mean, it was astounding to me. And one of them was this really, really well-known casting director at the time. She's hugely famous now. And she said, uh, well, I would hire you on spot because of David, but come for an interview. So I go and I interviewed, I, um, 
I ended up going into casting with her. I learned a great deal. I was there for about three years. And at that time, though, casting directors were not unionized and they didn't have a lot of benefits. You were a contract gig worker. And I was just like tired of, you know, I'd been a dancer and been a, you know, slinging coffee and stuff. And I was like, no, I'm going to try something else. So I uh, went into post-production and that was a really cool thing. I worked on a lot of um, DVD content extras and cool. I was really lucky um, because I had a fantastic boss and this was back in the day when content was being uh, generated for DVD like sets and, and, you know, a company would give you, well, we're going to give you $750,000 and we want you to make eight hours of content. And then, you know, the, our producer would say, okay, this is how we'll do it. And, you know, to start being creative and dividing all the stuff up. So Kevin, my boss comes to me and says, look, you're really, you, you came not knowing anything about this. You figured something out that usually takes people a very long time to do. I can train you to be an editor and a producer but you have to understand all of this is going away. The you know DVD, everything's going to the streaming platform. There's not going to be this kind of stuff produced anymore. You need to know what the writing on the wall is. And I said, so I'm going to be going back to being a gig worker. I'd learn a new skill and be doing the same thing I was doing before. And he said, yeah, but you know you could you know you can make a really good life out of it. And at this time, I had been having a you know overlapping this. I had been in therapy back in therapy. And my therapist had been pushing me for years. He goes, I really think that you should consider doing this. And I would, God, I hate hearing myself talk. I can't imagine what it's like listening to other people talk. And, and he said, no, you know, that's not really what it's about. And he kind of explained, he said, look, why don't you just go take the intro class, go take the intro class at Antioch, Los Angeles and, and see what you think. So I finally signed up for the class and within I think within 20 minutes of the intro class, I just felt like my synapses were crackling in a way that they hadn't in years. And I, I went right to the, uh, to the financial aid office and like sign me up. And that would be, it would have been for like a master's level. So I was getting a master's uh, out here. It's called an MFT a master's in family therapy and you're licensed at the master's level. But then I realized, you know, there are all these things about going to grad school that you, you don't know what questions to ask until you're halfway through the program. And those things would have probably affected your decision, but you didn't have that information. And now you're $80,000 in. And my experience was not that, oh, no, I've done the wrong thing. My experience was I need more education. Like I need, I want to do more I love this so much. I want to go deep. I want to be immersed in this um, subject. I didn't know it at the time, but I had ADHD and I'd had ADHD all my entire life. And, you know, it had never been diagnosed because it was not a thing that people talked about when I was growing up. Relatable. And what's that? <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like there's a part of me that sort of weeps for the kid that was just couldn't you know, I, for years, I mean, for literally two and a half decades or three decades, I was, you know, I had this bifurcated life and I could never understand it. And my teachers had never understood it. It's like, why was I so good in certain things and completely incompetent in others? Like, give me anything that's language-based and I'll figure it out. And not even just language-based. I mean, I just had these I would go into that ADHD zone for hours at a time and just sort of suck up knowledge and integrate it. But then, you know, 
things about organiz- organizing my day-to-day life were just really, really challenging. Um, but I, sorry for the sidebar, that's my ADHD showing, <laughs> but I go into this doctoral program because I knew, and now I was like, not only enjoying the work, but it was also to be very practical of, I need to, I was uh, 40 at this time. So I was like now, I think 42 years old. And I thought I have to create a trajectory that's going to give me some security because I don't know if there's going to be, well, I mean, we, I, and I came from a very modest background, so I was not making any assumptions that there was going to be any money from uh, or estate from my mom passing. That just wasn't something that was really in our lives. And um, so I was really making s- solid plans with even to the point that the program that I chose, I took a program that I knew I could work full time and still go to this program. Like Shia was saying, my program was a day and a half a week for four years. And for three of those years, I worked full time. And the company that I'd been working with, that that production company, really loved me and supported me so much. They Every time I'd come in and go, okay, guys, I'm losing another day. They were like, we don't care. We'll still pay you. You you know, you do this. But the great thing about this program was that it wasn't a full, uh, although it wasn't a full forensic program, it was a a clinical psychology doctoral degree with an emphasis in family forensics. And that means... You get specialized training like Shiloh's program. Well, like you get really a lot of training about the process of the legal system so that you really have an understanding of how the legal system works, which is eye-opening. You know, if you come from a background of not understanding at all, it's very, very eye-opening and sobering. And then I got really focused in uh, family forensics, which would be basically custody evaluation, Uh, I mean, specialized evaluations that were based on not necessarily just a a face-to-face interview with an individual, but like looking at all this collateral information of, you know, divorce, divorcing couples that are fighting over their kids. So each attorney has completed like a huge dossier on, they've interviewed all the family members, all the neighbors, and then you get to like this wonderful voyeur, you get to dive in all of these materials and really create a forensic profile of the person that's sitting in front of you. And you sort of wrap that within the understanding of the interview. And then on top of that, learning how to do that, we got to learn how to be expert witnesses in these kind of situations. So um, I got courted by one of my professors who said, you, when he read one of my papers, he said, you get this intrinsically, like you just intuitively understand what this process is about. If you want to do this, you're going to make a lot of money. And I was like, thank you so much. I absolutely do not want to do this because I don't want to be in between two people that are using children as cannon fodder. And he goes, I'm glad you know that because that's exactly what this is. And it will, it'll kill you if you're not up for it. It's going to really, it's going to really have an impact on your psyche. So what I did know was that and this is still true today, is that the prison system in California, which is very much has a, a real emphasis in mental health support, was always hiring. So my goal was, all right, I'm going to get out. I'm going to go to the work at the prisons. I'll come out with a shit ton of debt at this age, but I'll have all these programs that will help me pay off my student loans. And I'll be making a salary and I'll have to make some sacrifices. I'll be commuting to and from Central California every week. I was not their first choice. I barely made it in. I mean, I found out later our clinical director was like, oh yeah, you almost, I mean, it's not that you're not great and we're really glad you're here. And she goes, if I had known more about you, you would have been my first choice. I didn't really know 
you know, how hard you were going to work, but you, you almost didn't make it. It was because one person turned it down. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that story of our, you didn't know that. Yeah. Leah told me (laughs) and Leah was all, Leah was Shiloh. And I talk about Leah. She was um, our director and just a really, really amazing woman, unbelievably wise and grounded for someone as young as she, she is. I mean, she's much younger than me and she was just a really great leader and, and mentor. And, um, I'm so glad I made it into that program because I was fascinated by um, sex offender and pre and post incarceration treatment. And yeah, and that's where I met Shiloh. And we just, we like really weirdly hit it off from day one. And I don't know why, like, it's like this, we just sort of, we were both goofy a little bit, but like with this real, I don't know, there was something gritty about her and there's something kind of gritty in real life about me, probably because a little bit from my background and. Oh yeah. I I can tell both of you are very real. (laughs) All my interactions (laughs) with you have been very real, but we can still make each other chuckle. So it's okay. Oh yeah. yeah. That was huge. And we definitely did. So we needed each other in that year. Cause it was like the year from working on your dissertation, you're trying to get a job, you're finishing internships. So we are trauma bonded for sure. Yes. First question you said you can be an expert witness. And yeah. you're, you're, and that was mostly for the uh, like divorce proceedings and stuff like that, though, right? First, there's the the whole area of of expert witness. Like right now, even though I had that training, you know, all those years ago in um, custody evaluations, I would it would be wildly inappropriate and unethical of me to consider myself an expert in that matter because things have changed. Like the law has changed; it's evolved. But, you know, when you become immersed and you have experience, like you can say you're an expert, and unfortunately in today's media, you can say you're an expert in anything and many times get away with it. I would never do that. But I would say that I would consider myself probably in two areas of psychology right now. Like I would be comfortable saying I'm an expert witness. Forensically with my current position with a large um, mental health agency, I do a lot of court advocacy and, and part of my job is explaining to the judges, to the defense, to the prosecution. Let me help you understand what you're dealing with here. Yes, I, I know that you have, there's been this that's been committed, there's this charge, but let's look at the big picture. Well, and then my next question, it was when Dr. Shiloh, but it kind of applies to both of you. It's like when you both started to focus on the sex offender uh, aspects of our system, I mean, that's something that I think takes a, particular personality because I would just assume nobody wants to go into that realm because that's a hard one to analyze and have sympathy for, uh, you know, a perpetrator of that kind of type of crime, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I wholeheartedly admit that, you know, when I took that first internship and our programs similar to ours usually do two sort of part-time internships, and then you do your full one in your last year. And so my first part-time one was also in sex offender treatment. And then the last one was, of course, but, you know, again, I was still thinking I'm just doing this to apply to the FBI. I just want to sit in a room full of them and want to hear what they have to say. Like, honestly, I, I wasn't coming at it from this treatment mindset in the sense of like, this is what I'm going to do forever. I'll do it because it's my internship, but I really wanted a peek behind the scenes at what they were talking about in therapy 
and how that would speak to things like motivation and how could I learn from that and how could I, you know, possibly apply that to, you know, working investigations down the road. So for me, it wasn't like, you know, I didn't have that built-in empathy to just kind of be super open to, to helping quote unquote, fix them. And I, I can totally address that term later because everyone always asks, well, is there a cure because of treatment? But I will tell you within a handful of months and probably the first time they plopped me in a room to do my first one-on-one with, um, with someone who had offended in that manner, it was super engaging, super interesting. And you are just all in and you're in to be curious and still fascinated and learn, but then you start learning how you shape that into treatment, which is targeting very specific risk factors for reoffense. And for me, that's what hooked me. I was like, oh, there's a method to this and I can do that through treatment and hopefully be a little cog to help this person not create another victim down the road. So as I continued in that work and Scott and I probably have gotten this question a million times, how could you work with that population? Um, And I say the same thing. I don't know, but I can. And um, you know, I'm sure you want someone working with them. And if it, if it means that you're lowering that risk little by little through treatment, then that's, that's enough for me if more victims aren't created. I mean, we, we want to rehabilitate the common criminal, but we can wrap our head around somebody who stole a car or, or robbed somebody for money because out of necessity. But when it comes to sex offense, it's, it's a whole other level of no, those people should rot in hell and why even help. But, but it's the same concept. They're going to be released back out onto the street at some point. Yeah. And we need to make sure that society is safe. Absolutely. Do do? I, yeah. I think um, you're right. You know, when it comes down to just the bones of it, it's the same sort of cognitive behavioral therapy that you're going to do with anyone that you're trying to shape, reshape a problematic behavior or keep them from going back to doing that again. It's not guaranteed by any means, but certainly unless the answer is to keep them all locked up forever or to give them the death penalty, which I understand Florida is entertaining right now, this is what we got. And this is what we have to work with. Scott, you wanted to add? Part of of it for me, as far as the, the treatment, it was immediately fascinating to me. And you, especially as someone new to the area of evaluating and treating sex offenders it's it's an it's a different language and it's a different interpretation of or a different perception or broadcasting of um pathology and you'll have classifications within the sex offender spectrum like sexually violent predators that are wildly different from we would say no contact offenders like men who have collected hundreds of thousands of illegal child sex images. And and I'm not kind of saying that one is worse than the other because there's always a sense of victim victimhood here. But there's there's certainly some that you can you can at least create an alliance that you can have a conversation. And those conversations can be really fascinating when you find out what's really going on to make people tick. And one of the things that's most jarring with this population too is that just 
realizing, oh, this person is wired differently. Like they are wired completely differently. There's something going on. And sometimes by hook or crook, that wiring has either caused them or has created in them, in them a sense of entitlement about creating their own individual reality. And that is like something out of a black mirror episode. Like you can be in a room with someone and having a conversation and, you know, certainly as a, as a mental health clinician, you always want to make sure that you're controlling your own affect. So you want to make sure that you're not expressing horror and disgust. That's then going to shut down the communication you've got, but the things that people will share with you once you start having that therapeutic alliance is, is it's, it's wild. And then there's also the process of, um, there is a, an experience you have of processing your own, uh, your own life. And, you know, I came by the time I got to where I met Shiloh, I was in my mid forties and we were co we didn't usually co-facilitate groups together because we each had our own assignments um, as well as individual clients. And it kept us really busy. Like when we were the only ones that were doing it full time, we were there every single day mm -hmm. and the other two interns were halftime, but we were because of somebody being out one night, you and I were co-facilitating a group and in the middle of the group, and I've talked about this before, so it's not like I'm, I'm revealing any huge thing to your listening audience, but in the middle of someone sharing, I'm sitting there nodding and I've got my sort of, I'm hearing you speak, look on my face. And it was like suddenly a metaphor I'll use. If my brain was like an attic, someone just took a sledgehammer to all the windows and light poured in. And I realized that I myself had been victimized as a teenager and had never really understood that I had, I myself had been victimized um, on a regular basis by an adult who should not, who clearly shouldn't never have taken advantage of me in that way. And it was so jarring. I mean, I, like it shook me up for several days because it was one of those experiences where you go, oh, my entire paradigm of how I view my early self and myself as I stand now is, is completely radically and forever changed. And that wasn't a bad thing because um, I was able to take those experiences, go back into therapy. I was able to process some of it with Shiloh. I processed it with other family members and friends. And this wasn't a family member. It was a person in our community who I have later come to know victimized many, many young men over many years. I mean, I certainly, I would not hope that, that the field that we're in in forensics, like, uh, is that kind of experience for everybody that comes into it. But I value that because what if I had sat on that trauma for another five decades, you know, and never had the realization because all these puzzle pieces fell into place when I made those connections. And I don't think I ever would have made that connection it, if it, it hadn't been forced into me that way. And I'm just sitting there going, how did you keep your cool and calm in that group when you made that connection and this person's saying something, you have to stay professional. You can't lose your shit. Well, you know, I was trained as an actor. Um, as well as a performer, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm serious. There like I go. had a lot of training as an actor and I also had a lot of the, my siblings and I experienced a lot of trauma growing up and, you know, we were not, we were never physically abused. We were never sexually abused. That's great. We were never like overtly emotionally abused. We just had a mentally ill father and who created this sense of um, unsurety in our household. So there was just this constant hypervigilance. 
and all five of us kids developed like a, a bit of a superpower about how we manage that. And I would say it's a superpower with toxicity. You know, it's the kind of thing that'll kill you. It'll, it'll make you really good in certain areas of business, but it also makes you have more of a tendency to misinterpret the data around you and misinterpret the motives of others. So, but what I have learned to do in managing my hypervigilant state with a dad who was very volatile is like, you just learn to keep your face very, you know, non-reactive. So I was using survive childhood survival skills to become a better therapist. And Justin, the... just on the floor. I'm sorry, Justin, I've traumatized you. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's, I was just saying, hence the ADHD. <laughs> yeah. 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 That too. But when it comes to uh, just having to deal with somebody telling you about them victimizing another person, I'm sure that you can hold on to that. And that's going to traumatize both of you. The detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hearing some of these stories, I'm sure it's not that easy, right? It's not. Some of it was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, like, I will say this, like, there were some times where the holding your shit together was not laughing. Right. And and usually that was about like what, what Shiloh and I call uh, mental gymnastics, because the excuses that sex offenders <laughs> can come up with for perpetration, per perpetrating yeah. acts is wild, right? Actually, in a PowerPoint, I have top 10 excuses. It's yeah, it's the the stories are just super creative, but I I don't know. I guess if you're sitting in prison long enough and then you get out and you have a therapist to talk to, you have a lot lot of time to think about what you're going to say. But yeah, it's of course, you know, being aware of vicarious trauma is something that again, Scott and I both had excellent training in as students was how to take care of yourself and 
I think what hit home with that sort of training and Scott, I still have the PowerPoint that we got in that training. Again, our lovely director did so well as she provided us with all this information about every single person that could come in contact with just one instance of a sexual offense. You think from the second that victim makes a phone call, right? Whether they call 911, now you got a dispatcher that's hearing the story. Then you have the patrol cop, then you have the detective, then you have the nurse that's doing the exam, just all the way up. You can go all the way through the criminal justice system and then think about, okay, this person gets put away on the back end. Now you have Scott and I as psychologists with these people hearing the story, reading the stories. There could be at a minimum 20 professionals Mm -hmm. impacted, the juries that have to listen to this. And what she did is she pulled all of this research that showed judges who sit on these trials and specialize in sex offender proceedings, how their lives are impacted by vicarious trauma, you know, percentages of them that have problems in their own sex lives. I mean, it was just so, it was so validating to know that this one, this research had been done, but two, that other people were, were seeing it infiltrate their lives in certain ways, whether it's, um, you know, more traditional type of post-traumatic stress symptoms or something like, you know, I just mentioned, like maybe it makes your own sex life kind of funky for a while, because now when, you know, you're supposed to be enjoying sex, you're thinking about the last time you heard about sex was in the therapy room and it was horrific. So you have to take really good care of yourself. And I I don't use the term self-care lightly. You have to make sure you have a good support system. And that means professional and and personal to some extent, except there's an art to that, right? Because you don't want to then re-traumatize people at home because you're offloading some things. So there, there's a way to go about doing that. Um, it's very similar to the way that I sort of guide and teach and advise first responders now on how to use their support systems, but they don't have to tell about the gory details. They have to process what it is that they're thinking and that they're feeling, and that's what's helpful. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor. There's a busy fall season just around the corner. You might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. It can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. I know I'm busy running around during the day, so to keep my energy level up, I go with the lunch to go. It's effortless, wholesome meals like grain bowls and salad toppers that are ready to eat when you're on the go. No microwave or oven required. If you're looking for calorie conscious options, they have delicious dietary approved calorie smart meals, or if you need an extra boost to support your wellness goals, you can try the Protein Plus meal with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. With Factor, you can rest assured you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions, source 100% renewable electricity for all their production sites. This August, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose the meal and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered right to your door, ready in just two minutes, no prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com peripheral50 and use code peripheral50 to get 50% off. That's code peripheral50 at factormeals.com slash peripheral50 to get 50% off. I probably should have 
got that spreadsheet uh, or that PowerPoint before I started doing the peripheral because I hear some pretty heavy stuff here. And I, oh, yeah. No one ever told me, hey, Justin, this is how you process hearing somebody else's story. Mm -hmm. um, although I will say that most of the time I, I do have this incredible power to kind of shut off my emotions while talking to the person. But then when I have to go back and edit the podcast and hear it all again a second time, that's usually when it hits. Yeah, that's a great example. That's a really, really great way of illustrating that sort of compounded exposure. And look, you know, it's so um, related to the title of your your show is that without making huge generalizations, there are a lot of commonalities in the different generations about how they handle trauma. You know, I'm on the cusp between uh, Boomer and Gen X. I have my feet solidly planted in both of those areas. And ours was strictly, you know, sort of that Protestant work ethic, post-World War II mentality of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is what a lot of America is built on. And it's utter bullshit. I mean, just utter, utter bullshit that only leads to horrific trauma down the road, especially into in, in a, an economy like we have today. But there is a level and a specific kind of resiliency that an individual can gain from those lessons that that generation learns. And on the flip side, younger generations have this unbelievably wonderful ability to, and it's not entitlement, it's just this it's this reality of, I don't have to live the life that everybody says that I have to, and I get to have these emotions and I get to feel these things and there's nothing wrong with it. And that's like alien to me. So when I see younger generations have that amount of freedom, it's just unbelievably liberating. But the challenge is, is that we're living in a world where all of these generations are clashing mm -hmm. and that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's the way the world has always worked, but it's not comfortable. And I don't think that we talk enough about, you can't get away from discomfort and you we all have to learn to be resilient and learn to tolerate difficult emotions in whatever way works for us without fully uh, divorcing ourselves with reality from reality. Like, you know, not just totally dissociating. So sorry about that rant, but like, it's, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I really do. I really love that there's this you know, we are talking about trauma now. We're talking about vicarious trauma. We didn't even have the fucking vocabulary for that in the decades that I was going to therapy. You know, we were talking about trauma, but we weren't really thinking of it in these these terms that literally it changes our body chemistry. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I yeah, I, I relate because I am definitely Gen X, and I'm surprised and always sort of in awe when I see people that you know meet people that still have both of their parents are still married they're not they're not from a single right? parent home um, they they have dinner together <laughs> they you know they have a family unit i'm like what what's that who mm -hmm. has that um mm -hmm. because not a single one of my friends had that <laughs> well and that's really tricky too because in the same way that we you know that as a as an adult gay man of a certain age I had to spend decades unpacking the impact of heteronorms on my life and my decisions and the conflicts and emotion I felt about what I wanted to 
think about exploring for my life. Like I, like I'm not even allowed to feel these things. Like I want to think about what I'm allowed to think about. And I want to think about what I might be allowed to feel. I think that a deeper uh, exploration of that shows that we do the same thing. Hetero norms on hetero couples is, can be just as damaging because who's to say that you're supposed to be with the same person for 80 years if you do and you're happy i think that's fucking amazing like i love that i love that idea but you know you know trying to press everybody into the same mold is just unfair maybe maybe that's what you're supposed to do is stay be the best person you are for each other for as long as you can and then if you can't make it work think of the kid think of yourselves and move on but we shouldn't be demonizing people for making the right decisions about everybody's quality of life. Here's the MFT coming out now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take this back a little bit. Uh, when it, you do therapy for sex offenders, uh, you were talking about A, the fix, and B, the risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious about the risk assessment and how do you judge or gauge somebody's danger or release or for whatever determining factor you're whatever decision you're trying to make here the best we can <laughs> it's, <Exactly. laughs> it's so tricky because um no human can predict another human's behavior right so so yes it, it is certainly tricky um and that's why we can only really do risk assessments on people who have already committed a crime, been arrested for the crime, been convicted of the crime, because that's the population that we know has done it at least once, right? So we can't just go out into the population and say, oh, let's do an assessment and see who's going to be someone to offend for the first time. And the reason that is because the way that sort of the research and the statistics work in this way is that we get a population of offenders who have already offended and been convicted. And then we start teasing out through research, what are their commonalities? And we see that those have landed in sort of two pots, which are the separate risk assessment tools that we use, as well as our own clinical judgment. And so the two pots are static factors and dynamic factors. So Static factors are things that do not change. They are traits of the individual that just is what it is. And that's never going to get better. It's never going to get worse. So when we do a risk assessment tool, they get a score on that. And the score, actually, it can get worse because if they go on to reoffend again, then the next time they get that scored, it would actually go up. So those would be things like just the fact that if they're male, because we know that men are more likely to reoffend in their offenses than women. So you would get a point for that. If someone is under a certain age, they would get a point because it, there's a cutoff when people are more likely to reoffend. And then we know that offenders, all types of violent offenders, really sort of age out of offending. Um, that one has a little bit of a breakdown. And I guess that could change as the person gets older. Um, by one point, it's really not going to change their overall score too much. It also looks at their victims. 
and the types of offenses they've done. So we know that people who use more violence tend to uh, reoffend more. They're more impulsive. They are willing to take those risks. There might be some more psychopathy traits within them, things of that nature. And then the, the dynamic pot that we look at are factors that offenders have in common that can change. They absolutely can get better. And so when they come out of prison, they come into the community and they would see a psychologist like me, we assess them. And then that's where we sort of develop our treatment plan in therapy around is these factors that with therapy can absolutely improve. So those might be things like impulsiveness. You know, that's something you work on in therapy with a whole bunch of people, um, not just offenders, is looking at their impulsive natures. It's looking at their social support system. It's looking at, honestly, I mean, a lot of things that, you know, Scott was talking about resiliency earlier in trauma, you know, things that make you a more stable person, have a stable sense of self to where you can become a functioning member of society and not have to take advantage of other people to get your needs met. So as people go through treatment, we obviously work on those things. Um, and there's a whole bunch of dynamic factors. You know, I just named a couple of them. Um, it can also look at like deviant sexual interests. So Scott was saying earlier, he was referring to offenders being hardwired. And really we know that now there's biological bases research out there that supports this for pedophiles, for individuals who are sexually attracted to prepubescent children. There is a difference in their brain structure that we're learning more about, of course. I mean, in psychology, we're learning way more about everything now that we can brain map, but the majority of offenders do not fall into that category. The majority of offenders are situational opportunistic offenders where their dynamic risk factors were just really poor. Like those, those factors all came together. They have, um, high scores on those risk assessment tools. Um, hence the reason we focus on those. So no, there's no cure. Even if we were talking about someone with a disorder, like pedophilic disorder, there's no cure to that. Um, and there can be pedophiles out there that absolutely never offend. It's a sexual interest. Every pedophile is not a child molester because not all of them have offended. And every child molester is not a pedophile. I have evaluated many, many people who have offended against children where it's opportunistic and it's situational. It's not actually their, their sexual interest. I know that's going to blow people's minds and sound wild and they'll probably call bullshit on me, <laughs> Yeah. but, um, and, and this is the hard part about the job and why I love to educate about it because I mean, I've stood in front of you know, law enforcement crowds and sex crimes detectives and talked about this. And they look at me like I'm fucking insane. And they're like, nope, you know, a, a 45 cent bullet is the only answer here. And it's, it's not because the one thing when I first started doing sex offender treatment, when I got into that group, is I looked around the table and I was like, oh, that could be the guy I go to college with. That could be the guy that lives next door. That could be my uncle. The diversity of sexual offenders and who they are, it's everybody. Absolutely. It's not, not old white guys with weird glasses. Nope. 
it's everybody and it's um, there's something going on with them. And, and especially with, again, the opportunistic and situational um, I view as the most treatable because you can hone in on those dynamics and it's not, it's not a hardwired system in their body that you're trying to, you know, sort of um, buck up against. That's really, really difficult. And you started to mention psychopath or psychopathy. Uh, what, could you elaborate on that one? Because yeah, you were saying hardwired or not hardwired, and then you brought up a uh, psychopath. So yeah. how does that work with, is it nature versus nurture again? Just some, um, somebody's mom didn't give them the cereal that morning and that, and they just were predisposed to flip out? Like <laughs> <laughs> A little bit more than that. I mean, it depends on the cereal, right? But yeah. <laughs> So it, we see mostly we see psychopathy with rapists and those uh, adult offenders who sexually assault other adults. And I like to call them the equal opportunity offenders because they have the most diverse criminal background, which is one of the traits of psychopathy. They'll offend against whomever gets in their way just because they got to get their needs met. And that's that's that psychopathy uh, trait coming out in them. But what we know now with research and psychopathy, again, thank you to, you know, a lot of advances in technology is it's a three-legged stool. So two of those legs are biological. One is brain chemistry and brain structure. So there are areas of the brain that are more uh, responsible for aggression that we see light up in different ways than we do with non-psychopathic brains. That's putting it very, very simply. And then there's an aggression gene that is also something, a marker that we see in psychopaths who have been genotyped. So those two things are there, but you can have those two things and not commit violence against people or you know, sexually assault someone or murder anyone or become a serial killer. But the last leg of the stool that we see with violent um, psychopaths and nonviolent psychopaths is severe childhood trauma. Hmm. So it, it, again, has to be severe, long duration, usually pretty horrific type of childhood trauma. Um, and if that's absent, um, you know, some of your listeners may have heard of Dr. James Fallon. He's a neuropsychologist that figured was studying brains of psychopaths and figured out that he himself had the brain structure and had the gene, but had a wonderful childhood mm -hmm. and, um, you know, saw where those, those tendencies came out in being a risk taker and a daredevil and kind of the life of the party guy, but he wasn't taking advantage of people, um, in the ways that we see with psychopaths. I'm out on my ancestry.com right now and I'm not seeing the tab for the the <laughs> the gene here. <laughs> um, is that oh, something good. that's going to be added later, do you think? Oh my gosh. That is such that since Scott and I have been doing sex offender treatment, you know, me since 2006, I mean, that was always the question. Like, what if we can start marking this? And then we see it in people before they've offended. And then you have this crazy minority report you know, yeah. sort of situation. What I mean, do you do with that? I mean, it tells me whether or not I have, you know, the aversion to cilantro. So why couldn't it oh. tell me? Oh, you got the soapy. 
No, I, I don't have it, but it told me I didn't have it. <laughs> but I'm just like, why right. couldn't it tell me if I had the gene? You know, that would yeah. be very interesting. Well, I think I think it's called the MAO, is it nine? So if you see something on there like that, I can't remember the last digit. <laughs> it's, it, it really speaks to a huge conversation to, I mean, that, the, you know, using uh, the metaphor, the, the minority report is so apt because nature is fascinating and nature is on a spectrum. It is never binary. And, but it's just, it's a fascinating complex structure within a structure within a structure. And psychopathy is likely to play a role in that. Sure. sure. You know, we could, you know, worst case scenario is we find something to medicate away something that we don't like or we're uncomfortable with. So we get rid of it and we don't, we absolutely as a society would not understand what kind of Jenga mm. piece we're pulling out of the structure. Um, I mean, I don't, we don't know what purpose it serves. We have some ideas about what psychopathy could serve, you know, that maybe it keeps people from becoming too complacent because if you can become too complacent, then you lose cohesion as a group, which is a tribal survival, you know, um, biological imperative in many ways. So it, it's just interesting that something like this has become such a moneymaker, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it's what drives all these television shows and these entire networks and our podcast, right? Yeah. Yep. That, that was another question I have because, I mean, I've obviously been doing true crime podcasting for almost 11 years now, and there's a hundred million true crime podcasts out there, everyone and their mother doing one. I'm sure that you guys as forensic psychologists cringe when you listen <laughs> to true crime podcasts and hear us laymen speak on topics that we know nothing about is there anything that ever <laughs> sticks out to you about the true crime industry either podcasts tv shows whatever it is like things that make you cringe or things you just want to correct you know i've we both have similar thoughts about this but she's probably going to offer something different from me i have evolved in my understanding i'm very competitive um i you know i'm just going to you know, since it's just you and us talking, Justin, you know, I feel very close and intimate with you. So I'm going to share with no, you, no problem. you know, like I, I come from a, from a, my baseline can be quite envious at times. Right. So I see, you know, I think at the beginning of our journey through this process, I was quite envious, quite jealous and sort of pissy <laughs> to use a term about some people's success. Like I just didn't get it. I would listen and I'd go, I, there's just no substance here. And they have all these followers. And then, you know, I kind of got over it, like adults are supposed to get over things. And like by the time a couple of years goes by, you go, well, you know what? Somebody's listening to it and they're enjoying it. So that's fine. Uh, we discovered something. This is something that I discovered about doing this show that I had no idea was going to happen. I had no idea that we were going to have the kind of listeners that we have, which are so smart. And call us on things when we have misunderstood something or, um, or if they've gotten triggered, even people who've gotten triggered have reached out to us and said, Hey, I need to share this with you that this was my response to yeah. something that you said. And, you know, when we can, we can't respond to every of the, every one of those, but many of them we do. 
So you realize like, oh my gosh, I thought I was just getting behind a microphone to have fun with my best friend mm -hmm. and maybe offer up a little bit of something that we're going to offer the, the real psychology aspect to it. That's what we thought we could be the ones that added. And since we've come along, there are other ones, there are other forensic psychologists and regular psychologists that have gotten into the genre and they're doing a great job and their work is, is different than ours too. But I'll tell you what we've done, which I'm just like, I can't even say the word proud because I'm still so flummoxed and, and in awe of it is that this year we have a handful of people that are finishing their doctorate program and they started their doctorate program because they were listening to us because we went out of our way to make one entire episode about, so you want to be a forensic psychologist yeah. and, and, and we talk constantly about the challenges and we make it real. You know, we don't sugarcoat anything about this career. Like it's super fun and it can also just wear you the fuck out, but it's the way for many people, you know, like it is such a journey of learning about human behavior and then applying it to the world around you and your perception of yourself. <laughs> when he asked us what our pet peeves were. <laughs> yeah. So Scott and I do share one pet peeve that is sort of on that same vein is, um, people who call themselves psychologists who are not psychologists. Okay, now I'm triggered. <laughs> Sorry. Don't, don't I had buried wanna... that. I had buried that one. You oh might want to mute yourself, she, Scott. You know what? Here's the thing. I'm just going to interrupt this once and I'll let her talk. Like Shiloh is like, what she's doing is she's framing this very kindly. Shiloh is, has been very understanding about that. I, it's something that really pisses me off and, and Shiloh will elaborate on why it's so challenging for us. I, I don't know if I've been understanding of it. I think it's honestly been super, super baffling. I guess I've just been like, okay, why am I being triggered and where's my place in all this? Yeah. <laughs> but I was going to say, I, I know in the military, when somebody claims yeah. that they have a military background, when they don't, actual military members, veterans who've seen combat are like, uh-uh. And they get very triggered by someone who falsely yeah. claims that they have this thing, this honor, this whatever it is. Stolen valor. Yeah. Stolen mm -hmm. valor. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And by no means are we, you know, going through combat, but it can feel like it sometimes. And um, Scott and I have given you a taste of, you know, what it takes to get there. You know, what we've observed are, it, so it probably sounds like weird and petty. And in California and in most states, the term psychologist is a protected term in that you cannot call yourself a psychologist unless you are licensed with your state psychology board. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of things you had to have done in order to have gotten licensed in the first place. And really what it comes down to is that when you're licensed, you are now held to the standard of this board and bound by a set of ethics. So the frustrating part is when someone is not licensed, yet they call themselves a psychologist, there's actually no recourse because they're not bound by that entity that upholds the ethics. So they can, um, put themselves off as experts. Like Scott said, you know, you can kind of claim you're an expert in anything. They can um, still call themselves doctors. If they have a doctorate, if they have a doctorate, you can call yourself a doctor, no matter what your doctorate is in, yep. but psychologist is a unique term. It's duping an audience really at the end of the day. And just say what you are, if you're working towards it, if you have almost finished your program, but you haven't finished your dissertation, if you are 
a master's forensic psych student, but you're not a doctoral forensic psych student, it's okay to be a student. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. We've all been there. But it's, yeah. I it, mean, but there's also this element too, uh, on top of what Shiloh was saying, is that you could not do the same in the field of medicine. Like you could call yourself an MD, but you can't practice. And there are laws that, I mean, you will go to prison if you do that. And within the field of psychology, you'll just get a slap on the wrist. If you call yourself a psychologist and you're not licensed and you open an office and you start treating people and you fuck something up and somebody sues you, then in, through that, that process of that legal action, it's going to be revealed that you're not a psychologist at all. But it's very unlikely that you're going to go to prison. Like you might get fined or something, but like you'd have to do something super egregious. So it's like there's nobody out there gatekeeping this with any teeth at all. And there should be some teeth to it. I mean, the number of years that we put into our education and the number of clinical hours is in the thousands. I mean, I have 7,500 hours between my doctorate and my master's level training and assistantships before I was even allowed to sit for my licensure exams. It's not that these people are going to, you know, probably open a practice and like treat people like th that would be horrific and they should go to prison. Yeah. But, you know, if you're duping an audience or you're duping, um, you know, other people that are interviewing you or that are asking for your expertise and just representing yourself as something that you're not, then what does that do to the integrity of true crime? Like you said, when everyone and their mother is out there doing it. I think the the closest I ever came to saying something like that is I said, I'm not a therapist. I just play one on my podcast. Like there you go. It, it was a self-deprecating thing. <laughs> it's but, wonderful. You, you guys, it's a disclaimer. It's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I had tried to gently confront someone one time, like, and I was like, okay, when I, okay, I have to go into therapist mode. I have to use the right language. I have to use the right affect. And I expressed, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you actually can't call yourself a forensic psychologist. You don't have any of the training, you're not licensed, and you, you actually don't even hold a doctorate and you do have to have a doctorate. And the individual started crying and said, I was mean. Oh. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, what, what, what do you do with that? Yeah, it's probably worked. <laughs> it's probably a great manipulation that's worked a lot for that person. <laughs> Pro yeah, that's a good, yeah. <laughs> So, okay. Yes. There's our pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. And I guess my, my pet peeve is when people, uh, they just, they either victim blame a lot mm. or they misuse mental health or mental illness terminologies, you know, where they just use them very flippantly. Like somebody goes, Oh, my ADHD or Oh, my OCD. And I'm oh, like, that's, yeah. you don't actually have that. And if you did, you probably wouldn't be saying that because, or you wouldn't be saying it in that way, definitely, because yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I know people with debilitating OCD and ADHD yeah. um, and uh, I'm one of them. So it's, yeah. that's, that's one of my pet peeves, I guess. I did think of one. Can I share it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Shiloh and I really try and do the right thing by saying, remember, okay, this is 40 years ago, and we can talk about the culture at the time, and we can talk about the factors that we know. And in this case, this is something that might have happened. And it's not like we're on ancient aliens on the History Channel saying, yes, it could have been. Da, da, da. We're really trying to frame it as professionally as possible. 
but one of the most successful shows right now, and I give all credit to this creator who works very hard to create their product. But what I've been hearing more and more often is this particular creator dissing police work. And if, if there's been shitty or shoddy police work or detective work that's been done and it is objectively shitty or shoddy, then it needs to be called out. But for someone who's never done anything but sat behind a microphone, suddenly saying with 100% confidence that the detectives have just dropped the ball on this and they missed this and they missed that is incredibly, um, it's not just unfair. It's like it's muddying the waters for people that are still out there investigating and adjudicating these incidents. And it's traumatizing family members because family members that might want to be hanging on to any hope, even though there is no evidence to support the resolve that they are seeking, except for somebody out there sitting behind a microphone spouting nonsense. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. And that's something that I'm sure that I'm actually guilty of and something that I try to be more cognizant of. It's so enticing to cover the cases that are a complete mess. Yeah. And it's hard to sell somebody on, oh, well, there's this case where the cops did a bang up job and got the guy within a day. There is an audience for that, but it's not as intriguing. Although I, I will say that I just told Aaron, I want to cover this case because the cops did a bang up job and nailed this guy within 48 Mm. hours. And I want to kind of balance out because most of the cases on Generation Y that I cover are, are messed up investigations, are messed up court systems, are messed up things that happened because I'm trying to show, hey, our system isn't perfect. It could be improved. I'm trying to educate the audience on this is how bail and uh, a trial actually works. It's not like CSI or law and order, but I think people are a little bit more educated these days, at least in the true crime realm, but the common public, no, they have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny that reflecting on that, that as a former police officer and someone who works in the arena, obviously now, and comes from that family that doesn't even bother me because I'm so used to the public apathy (laughs) towards law enforcement. Um, But what I do find fascinating in true crime is how creators almost in like, you know, back-to-back days will be so glorifying of police and hold up law enforcement officers as these true crime celebrities. And then in the next breath, it's all vilified. And I just, I don't know what to make of that. I just yeah. find it super interesting that it, you know, it's again, like something that's kind of in the binary. And I love Justin, that you're exploring balancing something out just because, you know, if it feels a little too unbalanced, why not throw, you know, a bang up job in there? Yeah. The detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. 
They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. One of my earliest memories as a child was seeing Richard Ramirez's face on the TV. Yep, same. And, and I personally believe that the investigators and the Richard Ramirez case did the best job they could have done. And mm-hmm. when I met him at CrimeCon, I was like, hey, <laughs> it's an honor to meet you because I personally believed Richard Ramirez was one of the scariest serial killers out there because he was chaos. Yep. Like a lot of them have an MO, whereas Richard was just like, he just saw you walking into your house. He would just follow you in. But I'm in, again, I, I have to admit, I'm, you know, in one breath, I can well- sit here. You know, on each case, I can say bang up job or terrible job, but I try to at least take it on a case by case basis. I try to at least do that. Well, let me let me clarify something, Justin, that first of all, you're not who I'm talking about. Oh, I know. If if you're really concerned about that. (laughs) And it's you. (laughs) Uh, We've been meaning to talk to you about something, Justin, Um, but but, my car warranty. (laughs) Right, right. I've been searching for this opportunity. But, you know, my concern uh, is linked to deliberate muddying of the waters. You know, it's one of the things that on one hand, we have this really kind of fascinating phenomenon of citizen detectives, which is really kind of amazing because there are some brilliant people out there that come up with some amazing things and can see patterns that maybe everybody has missed. And that's wonderful, but not everybody has that ability. And you'll see some Reddit threads where the administrators will go off on newbies and say, don't bring your shit in here. We've been here for 10 years. Start with the posts that are 10 years old and, and see how we've debunked everything that you've just tried to say. Because we talked about that a decade ago, and we're not going to bring that up again. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about people that are not deep dives on any of this, and they make just a lot of assumptions about what they think their understanding of the investigation process is. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that really pisses me off. And I, I actually stepped in what I call, I stepped in dog shit on one of my episodes. Um, I haven't even put it out yet because I feel like I need to rework the whole thing. But all the research that was done was pretty unbiased. But I 
made the mistake of watching some YouTube videos and listening to another person's podcast about the yep. case just to get a handle, you know, just a generalization mm -hmm. of this case. And there was the narrative that the police completely messed everything up and they were, it was a total conspiracy. Oh, wow. So I kind of went into the, into it with that mindset, but then once I was like halfway through the recording, I, I was looking through the research and I'm like, you know what? I'm getting all of this wrong. Like I've been influenced by these other people muddying the waters mm. and sure. Yeah. I'm, I, I think that the investigation was probably messed up because they didn't actually get an arrest made. But that said, some of the accusations and speculations made, made as if they were true, were totally unfounded and untrue. And then, uh, and then I happened to come across some TV show that actually covered the case after I was done recording, where they did a reenactment and totally disproved every single thing that every single podcaster had said about this case. And I was like, I got to redo this episode. Oh yeah. You got to start <laughs> from scratch there. <laughs> yeah. And good for you for yeah. challenging yourself in that way. That's, right. uh, you know, people on one hand, it's just very easy for people to make their understanding of the easiest assumption. And their easiest assumption is that there's a conspiracy when it's actually just a lot more simple that someone is in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong set of circumstances and something awful happened to them. But also and, forget that conspiracies take a lot of fucking work. I never assume malice when incompetence is so prevalent. <laughs> yeah, just, I love that. Put that on a t-shirt. Uh, conspiracies. I mean, I understand that you can have possibly a couple police officers who are like, eh, I'm just not going to really look into that. Or you can have a, a captain mm -hmm. who isn't pushing forward on this specific case and might deprioritize it. But is that really a conspiracy or is that just something else? And, yeah. and a lot of families who are victims, they've never engaged with law enforcement. They've been victimized. Maybe somebody's been murdered. Maybe their child is missing and they've never called 911. And that's something that I think, I mean, me, I've engaged with law enforcement a lot in my life. A lot of them don't have the best bedside manner. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh, I'm with and, you. And a lot of them aren't going to call you back immediately. But when oh your gosh. child's missing, that's the most important thing in your life. It's not yep. the most important thing in that detective's life. And so a lot of people get, you know, it's it's easy to give investigators and police officers a bad rap because- they're just people too, but yeah. And just anecdotally, the detectives I've worked with who have worked homicide, who have worked, you know, child sex crimes, the ones who are so, so invested in their victims and their cases are fucking wrecks. Like oh their gosh. own life yeah. is, it, it's truly the epitome of something's got to give. They put their heart and soul into these victims and don't want to retire, leaving one case unsolved and their life is trash. It it's makes me think of true crime, the true criminal, true detective, true detective. I mean, seeing these people, it just like they, be, I mean, they become obsessed. And then, you know, kind of tying this also back to our earlier conversation, Justin, about the, those detectives that work on the sex crimes desk, they have to rotate out every couple of years and many times they're forced out because mm -hmm. admin knows that 
we have to preserve them. We don't want them like completely drinking themselves to death because of the absolutely horrible shit that they have to see on a day-to-day basis. And and I think that a lot of jobs, even a patrol officer might need to be rotated out after a few years because some people, they can do it for 10, 20 years and keep their cool. Other personality types, I think eh, two, three years, and maybe you might become jaded. Maybe you might not see this person as, you know, you see everyone as a bad guy now and and you don't understand that this is just a regular folk trying to get to work and you don't have to, Mm -hmm. you know, give them a hard time. But I'm not saying everyone needs to be rotated out, but I think it's definitely something that just kind of struck a chord when you're like, you know, in the sex crime division, we need to rotate them out. I'm like, I think, I think you might want to rotate out a lot of people in different divisions because then you get fresh ideas, you get a fresh view of something and you don't get jaded or burned out, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. But I, you know, I would, if I were king for a day, I would love for that to be addressed on a deeper level. Like, is that cultural specific to the organization? Is that, um, you know, just negativity and toxicity, or is it the wrong person for the job with the wrong personality to begin yeah. with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's tough when you have people in these specialized units that have such high, high exposure to trauma that, you know, you rotate them out, but now you're losing someone who's really good and really seasoned and um, experienced and you get a newbie in there. But like you said, it brings fresh ideas. There's pros and cons to all of it. Something I do wish a lot of true crime podcasters would do is a police ride along. Yes, or, please. Or just, or, <laughs> you know, something to the effect of a, a search for a body, you know, with the yeah. family. Most local agencies have a, what they call a citizen's academy. So you go like one night a week for like eight weeks in a row and you just learn the ins and outs of the different units of the police department and they have speakers and then they have you do all the things like you go shoot guns and you go on ride-alongs and you go to driver's training school. It's pretty cool. People should look into it. Yeah, I did. I did a ride-along. I've actually done two ride-alongs and I did a, uh, a seminar of uh, escalation of force seminar. Mm, mm, um, mm-hmm. And that was very eye-opening. I was going to sign up for one of the citizens of uh, academies, but it, the schedule was just, I couldn't do it. And I was yeah. like, I'm not going to sign up for this because I'm, I'm not going to make it. So I'm not going to get what I need out of this. But uh, yeah, they're, it's really eye-opening because you get to really see, I mean, on one of my police ride-alongs, I was just really, I was really impressed by the police officer because we had a call for a, a city bus and some guy was quote unquote exposing himself. Mm-hmm. And we get there and the man on the bus is like passed out drunk and his pants are down. And the police officer had the wherewithal to be like, okay, did he mean to expose himself? Right. Or was he just drunk and his pants are down? Like he he wanted to make that distinction. And I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> like you you didn't just arrest the guy as a sex offender. You you actually asked a few questions, talked to the bus driver, and everyone's like, no, the guy's pants were just down and he was on drugs or drunk. And I was yeah. like, that's that's oh my God. I love to hear that story because one, as a sex offender treatment provider, I don't need that guy in my class, right? Like he's taking up space that I'm going to waste my time and energy on yeah. and he's not truly a sex offender. But two, like Scott said, they're really good at making up stories. And we probably had people that are like, I was just drunk on a bus with my pants. Down. <laughs> so I'm glad the cop took the time to make the distinction for sure. 
and it was obvious. I mean, I'm no detective myself, but I, I could tell <laughs> that the guy was not trying to intentionally expose himself to anyone. What's the craziest thing that happened on one of your ride-alongs? Um, you know, there wasn't anything that crazy. It was just more informative. Uh, yeah. And there was a suspicious person in a house, and we went to the call, and uh, we roll up, and another squad car rolls up. And I was like, oh, is that your backup? And he's and he, and he goes, yeah. And I said, well, did you call him? And he goes, well, they just all monitor. So we just back each other up inherently. Like we don't right. have to back each other up. Now, the call ended up being a bogus call. It was a, a contractor painting the house, but the neighbor didn't know it was a contractor painting the house. So suspicious mm. gentleman in the house, but it was a no, nothing about it. So uh, what was... <laughs> What was the most wild thing was when we got back to the police station two hours before a shift ended, and I had to watch him type in all of his police reports on the most antiquated piece of shit computer I'd ever seen in my life. Oh, wow. You I have no it. idea. <laughs> and yeah. and I'm like, uh, we have Windows 2000 or whatever XP at this point, whatever, yeah. you know, it was 10 or 10 years ago. Uh, and and they, they have like this AS400 system where he has to scroll down to select the gun that was found. And oh it has God. every single gun made in this dropdown. So he has to scroll for like five minutes. And if he misses it, he has to start over. I'm just like, ah. There you go. Government work. Yep. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I wish I had something more crazy to share, but no, it was actually. But it, I think that that's, a, that's very valuable. No, no, no. What you're talking yeah. about is very valuable. People don't understand the majority of the banality mm -hmm. of, of the work. And it's one of the reasons like people will come into the job and realize like way too late that it's not for them because they think it's going to be jacked up and, 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 you know, really hard charging all the time. And it's not it certainly is an element of it and you have to be ready. And that's why, you know, hopefully wherever you live in the country or in the world, you have, you're going to an academy that is really, really well honed in their training uh, protocol. And most of them are, and, you know, there's more, I think that they're challenging law enforcement to, to, to be better. I mean, one of the things that I point out when I, I do uh, weekly, bi-weekly lectures to law enforcement in a, a training program that educates them on uh, mental health issues in the community and how to de-escalate situations. And one of the things um, that we touch on or that I try and acknowledge so that they know that there are people out there that are not sworn that are acknowledging this is that your job continues to evolve at an exponential rate that was never intended, you know, and like, I'll say who's been on the force five years, who's been here 10 years, who's been here more than 20 years. So you'll get a selection of hands and the ones that are, you know, the oldest will say, yeah, they they'll be the first ones to raise their hand and go, I, I still love my job, but this is not what I signed up for. This is very, very different. And, and some of them will even go like some aspects of what I do, I really enjoy. And they, they didn't start until the last 10 years of my career, but you know, people, I think the the general public doesn't really have any idea no. about that banality about like a lot of it is just when I was, when I, when I did ride alongs, when I first started in this work and like just being in a car in the middle of a heat wave in the summer and just driving in the same pattern for hours. Yep. And then first, then I'd get bored and like, Oh, oh my God, how do they do this? And then we'd come to a complete stop. 
and the deputy would yank out his high powered beam and flashy goes, no, just saw a guy look there. There he goes. There he goes. Like something he was so trained to see that I had, it was a flicker to me. I would never have known that. So here's this person that has become a specialist in this area that is trained to do something that's very valuable to, you know, keeping our community safe. Yeah. Um, again, it's distress tolerance. You have to sit with difficult emotions about the reality of the good and the bad in any profession. I was in the military. I joined the army back in 1994. And uh, let's just say that any idea or aspect of fighting for our freedoms went right out the window when I spent two weeks mowing yards and cleaning dishes, you know, and, and kitchen yeah. patrol KP. And I'm just like, yeah. this is the banality of it, as you put it. It's just right, like, this, right. this is not what I signed up for at all. And go on a, anyone should go on a police ride along because you'll, you'll see what their normal day is. And, um, yeah. I mean, and yeah, feel free to like, I'm getting a little disinhibited. So I'm afraid of, <laughs> I'm afraid of some of what I just said. So if you no, you're fine. feel free, like, you know, softening and or editing it out. Cause I, you know, when I, I actually was more like, oh, when you guys were laughing about excuses, sex offenders did, I'm like, oh God, someone's going to write and be like, they're laughing about sex offenders or something. Probably. But, but I, this I actually, is just cynicism. Yeah. But it, that, that's, that's something I wanted to ask you specifically about. Yeah. It's just like, after you've been in this job for so long, it's, you, you kind of have to find some humor, some outlet, some something, because if you can't laugh, you're going to cry, right? <laughs> oh, you need to have it the day one that you start. I don't think yeah. it's just after this long. I mean, there, it is, and psychologically speaking, you know, it is a coping mechanism. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's a very impulsive one. Mm -hmm. And other times it's a part of the way that you process with other people. And that processing, like I said, is so important in your, your self-care. And it's it's your little way of like, doing little litmus tests with people yeah. and both Scott and I have probably had experiences where, you know, maybe you say something and it was a little, it went a little too far and you need people that you trust to check you on that. So you yeah. don't start to drift. So you don't start to become too cynical. It's all in moderation. Like Justin, you were talking about the, um, like the compartmentalization when you're interviewing someone and then that creeps up for you later, some of the emotion, compartmentalization is not all bad. There's a healthy amount of that that you should have for these types of jobs. Like when I said, I don't know how I do it, but I can do it. Yeah. Um, there are other types of jobs that would just rip my heart out every single day and I'd be a horrible mess. So um, yeah, humor, notoriously um, first responders and those exposed to trauma use it a lot and it can be really, really beneficial. I use it myself. So I've gotten myself in a lot of trouble over the last 10, 11 years now with some of the jokes I've cracked, but I always try to not ever crack a joke at the expense of a victim. That's never right. been anyone's intention ever. I think, uh, I think most, of the yeah. time, you know, my, you know, nervous laugh when I'm talking about a prosecutor and the audacity of him claiming, you know, five people were all in, in on the same murder when obviously it was just one person, you know, I, I have that yeah. egregious laughter and people don't like it in the true crime genre. So I kind of put a cap on it after a while, but there's always going to be somebody, yeah. there's always going to yeah. be somebody, but, but, you know, 
true crime comedy podcasts are the biggest in the industry. I know. So go figure that one. Um, I don't. I don't. Yeah. I, you know, I, we've experienced that too. And I assume sort of have people listening to us that want a little bit more clinical, you know, sense about it. Um, especially if they just see the word psychology and they're coming in cold and like this podcast, you know, Justin, it's, it tends to be a very sort of serious tone and there's very serious topics. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to be the most lively person <laughs> to like be on this show. And should I tamper down like my demeanor for today? No, but we got to like, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. But yeah, I think certain folks expect a certain tone, if you will. And when you deviate from that, uh, sometimes it triggers someone. So, well, and that also has to do with these parasocial relationships that develop totally. from podcasters and their audience. I mean, we, I've, Dr. Shiloh gets a little bit, but I get a lot. And I came to realize, actually, I was talking about with my therapist and my therapist goes, you're getting that because you've created, most likely they trust you, but they're trusting their internalized view of you. And now what's happening is, is that the reality of you is coming in conflict with that internalized view, but they feel comfortable going off on you <laughs> because it's a, it's an imagined relationship. It doesn't have the real like depth that, um, that in real life relationships have, but you know, it's been an opportunity. It hasn't been a lot, um, but boy, there have been some people that are fired up and I was like, yeah. And it's that relationship that, uh, what would you call it? The peril parasocial parasocial relationship. I mean, you know, you read a book and you think you know the author or you listen to music right. and that guitar riff, you just are so engaged with. But if you ever were to meet that guitarist or meet that author or meet that podcaster, I mean, I, I cuss mm. a lot. I'm very crass. I'm very self-deprecating. But what people hear is me trying to put together a very coherent, uh, trying to be unbiased assessment of a murder or a case and on the peripheral they just hear me very sympathetic and understanding and non-judgmental but then if they were to meet me in person and i would crack a joke about some odd looking fellow on the street they might be like well now justin's just shattered my entire image of him yeah because... how, da how dare he <laughs> yeah you know. dare he be a well-rounded person <laughs> <laughs> i know <laughs> and that's that's the that's something i've actually just i i won't say i've even struggled with it's just it's it surprises me and catches me off guard because I forget. I forget that people have just me in their ear, just my voice in their ear, this very intimate situation. And they mm -hmm. think they know me. They think they know everything about me. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. You talk about self-care a lot. Uh, how do you guys self-care and how do you define self-care and what do you do for self-care? I was going to say, I am the worst. <laughs> well, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, or I'm I'm feeling lately I I could be better. Um, you know what do I do? I I think it's I'm gonna just gonna be very very authentic. I think it's really hard for me right now to give a fully fleshed out, well rounded answer because I I I don't have a lot of balance in my life right now. I am one of those that is really feeling the effects of what COVID took away from us. Like it's mm -hmm. I feel like I'm really at the receiving end of a boomerang. And part of that is because I'm in private practice as well as my day job. And I lost uh, a family member during COVID. So there's a lot of things that I haven't processed yet. And then there's some other like big life, big life events that have happened in the last year. So 
I do things like, okay, I, I don't have the energy or the, the psychic awareness right now to really engage in any of my breathing exercises or any of the things that I know I should do. What can I do? I can take my supplements. I can drink an extra glass of water. I can get up from the desk and go into the interrogation room and turn off the lights for 15 minutes and do deep breathing. You know what I'm saying is like, I just, I grasp at whatever I can get. Like, you know, pre COVID I was still hardcore at the gym. I was, you know, doing yoga. Shiloh and I are recording constantly, you know, yeah. doing events and I'm, I'm still trying to find like the, the post COVID balance. And the thing that is actually good from this very challenging experience is that it makes it real for the clients who come to me for private practice. And they are as just as out of sorts. And they're like, I don't understand. And I go, this is not you. This is not you. You're not a bad person. You're not a failure. You're not a loser. You're not inept. You, this is something that you were experiencing on a global level. And it's just that you and I are talking about it. We're actually trying to bring it to the surface and fix it. But laughing is really good for me. Laughing completely changes my body chemistry. So like I can be just in the shittiest mood and I'm like, wait, I've got my, my whole list. My, I've got my YouTube playlist of every favorite Saturday night live skit. Yeah. And that will, <laughs> you know, that'll, that will actually revitalize me for several hours after doing that. Well, you have a very robust toolbox that you talk about a lot. And I think that is the key, the the variety of things you have to cope, whatever it is that, that helps you as an individual, the variety and the amount of them, because Scott yeah. has so much in his toolbox that he's able to scrape the bottom crumbs and be like, I can do these three things. <laughs> Can't lift that wrench, but I can get this Band-Aid, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, you know, for me, it's evolved over, over the years. I somehow managed to just be as stressed out as a person could possibly fucking be <laughs> and manage. And I went many, many, many years like that and always had um, lots of plates spinning. And I think in the last few years, that's definitely changed where I have felt like physiological effects of just white knuckling through it. Um, even when things are good, when I have my, my perfect sort of work-life blend, I don't call it balance because I think balance is a horrible expectation that no one ever meets. So it's bullshit, but it's, it's the blend that works for me of um, at any given time, my family or my job is going to require more of me. And we all ebb and flow and have great communication around that. I love my family so much for um, supporting the work that I do in the podcast because it's extra time and it does take away from them, but we communicate about it. And I make the extra effort to spend time with them, even when I'm horribly exhausted, but it's little things and it's big things. So to get back to my own toolbox, my little things are almost every single night. I know this is going to sound so freaking cliche, but it totally works for me is that I do take my bath and my bath is my zero human interaction time. It's 20 minutes. Mom needs to not be interrupted and family's totally on board. And that is like super rejuvenating. Also my transition home from work, I come in the door, I say hello to people, but I immediately go in and I change my clothes because it's, it's just a symbolic way of changing from work to home and now being mom. I have 
<laughs> when I first started feeling heart palpitations and, um, you know, some little mini anxiety attacks, I tweaked a couple of things for me. And that included not drinking caffeine in the afternoon. I love coffee, absolutely love coffee, but I had to give that up. I, um, got up from my desk every day and did 20 minutes of just walking around my building. These are things I can do at work. And then I started implementing, um, a meditation practice every day with a really wonderful app called balance, which is awesome. Is there a code for that? (laughs) Right. I wish, um, no, I could probably send you a referral link, Justin, (laughs) but that's just for me, but it, it just, honestly, like I've tried a ton of things and it, um, it just has the best interface and it's individualized to the person and it's not too much. Some are just like too much and I'm not going to do all that crap, but it teaches me skills. And I, I'm not someone that's like, Oh, let me just sit and do a breathing exercise. Like maybe Scott can do in the interrogation room. I need an actual skill to think about what I'm doing. Cause that's just how my brain works. So, you know, I had to learn how to make a couple of tweaks and learning to say no. And unfortunately that has been something, you know, Scott and I have had to say no to a lot of podcast opportunities because we're taking care of ourselves. So yeah, my world is, is work home, but also, you know, this beautiful project I get to do with Scott is a big part of it. And social support is everything. I've been, I've always had wonderful people around me. I think I've been terrible at utilizing them. Um, and I've had to learn to lean into them more for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's something that I've learned lately. I I know uh, Dr. Scott and I have had a very similar lives over COVID. Yes. uh, (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I, my upbringing was very similar. Just you help yourself. You don't be a burden to others. And Oh yeah. Oh, God, what a horrible lesson to give a kid. Yeah. And I'm finally going, no, I'm not a burden. And I'm trying to convince my mother who is in terrible health that she's not a burden on me. And if she needs something, I'll drop what I'm doing and come over, but she'll Mm. never call because she, she's the one that taught me don't be a burden, you know? And she was taught it. Yeah. You know, and her grandmother was taught it and her, it's just, it's, that's intergenerational transmission of trauma. I mean, it's on a micro level, but boy, it has such a major impact. It's something that I've learned and um, I've uh, absolutely have tried to relearn that lesson and say, hey, you need to talk to others, but you need to talk to the right people and you need to talk to the people that are going to be happy for you and your successes and supportive in your failures, not the person that's going to be envious of your successes and not the person that's going to victim blame you for your failures. Uh, Right. Or be your 100% cheerleader the whole time, even when they should tell you to stop whatever it is you're doing. Exactly. (laughs) um, I think it was good. It was Um, awesome. You guys didn't mention your podcast. Oh, Oh. there's a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, we are. We are Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. We use our first names because we actually do work as law enforcement and forensic psychologists. And we have a podcast called LA Not So Confidential. And our tagline is true crime, psychology, and snark. Well, I I hope that I had some good questions for you. And I I knew that you guys are professional. So even if I felt like I was completely off my game tonight, I I knew you guys would pick up the weight for me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Not at all. This has been great. This has been been a very... um, 
this has been a nice conversation yeah. and I hope, I hope that your listeners will be interested in, in us. Yeah. Um, and you know, we're always, uh, taking ideas for shows and, um, you know, we love the opportunity to, to speak to other creators like yourself. So mm -hmm. thank you for the opportunity.